Hey, I'm Caleb Howard, and this is Tales from Sacred Texts, a religious folklore and Christian theology podcast. Here, we discuss stories from the Bible, the Apocrypha, and the fine line between myth and history surrounding various belief systems. We take on the stories in a sarcastic and humor-driven way that doesn't take itself too seriously, but still shines a light on the principles and ideology behind the stories and their origin. This supplemental is going to be way different from the rest of my podcast. Instead of telling stories and sharing some facts at the end, I'm going to be getting very deep into some theology from the get-go and for the whole episode. Well, I wouldn't say theology. I'd say practical, real Christianity. Even that's not really a good description. It's really hard to explain what I'm saying without diving in head first. So I'm just going to start by getting into the episode. So I came here to try to explain Christianity in a nutshell to both non-believers and serious Christians. I had a whole episode written, and I was poised to tell the story of Christianity from the beginning to the end in a way that made sense to everyone. Well, I'm not going to do that. Because what I was attempting was going to be impossible. As FYI, because of the bad rap Christianity has in some circles, I will be referring to those who practice what Christianity was meant to be as followers of the way what the New Testament Christians called themselves. You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains that you simply can't explain the way to those who are Greeks, or the secular humanist crowd, or the Jews, who are those who are religious but only outwardly. To the irreligious, the way is idiotic. It makes no sense. Everything else is based on science, facts, philosophy, things that are explainable from a human perspective. For example, the Greek gods were like humans, They had human emotions. You did things for the gods. You did things to make them happy. A god from a different plane than us, who followed different rules, who did things to make us happy, who let himself face that day's equivalent of the lethal injection. It was laughable. It made no sense. To the religious, the way is a stumbling block. It causes people to fall into sin. It leads people to forget about the rules, to associate with a profligate, to put themselves in the way of evil. The practitioners of religion should keep themselves as far away from the evil people as possible. They should follow the rules the right way. They should do whatever it takes to make God not angry with them anymore. The followers of the way coerce people into sin. To touching what the religious leaders claimed was unclean. To running straight toward the evil people with open arms. To looking at what God did to make humanity not angry with him anymore. Because that's literally what following the way means. We were awful people. We did horrible things to each other and to God. Then God sent his son to live with humans, right in the middle of the disease, the filth, and the malice, and to be kind to them in situations when the most noble human would have thrown them to the curb and kicked them in the face. Then God pleads with humanity, you've seen how much I love you. Now will you please stop being angry with me and love me back? It's overwhelming. It takes a little while to wrap your mind around, and then you wrap your mind around it a little more and a little bit more. It doesn't matter the worst thing that you've done. God knew what you'd do, and he allowed them to whip him half to death, to pound nails into his feet and hands, to hang him on a cross naked for the world to laugh at, because he didn't want that awful thing you did to determine your fate forever. The gospel just means good news, and the good news is that the Christians should be running around telling everyone, 
there is a God. That in and of itself is not good news. Imagine if he was the kind of God who threw people into eternally burning hell because he didn't like what they did. The answer, the good news, is that there is a God, and he looks like Jesus. A former Christian pastor, known for going to extremes, recently went around declaring that there was no sin, that we aren't that bad of people, and that flies in the face of everything the gospel teaches. You see, there are three common theories about what drives humanity. Some say it's money. We are greedy and want as much as we can get. Some say it's power. We will do anything for power over others. And others say it's sex. We will do whatever we want to get our sexual desires gratified. That is the meaning, they allege, of all the actions humans take. The way suggests a fourth. God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. All actions by humans are in contrast with love are the desperate attempts of imperfect people to find something that fills the hole that the desire for perfect love leaves in our hearts. Some chase money, others chase power, and still others chase sex or other pleasures like drugs. But those who follow the way know that these things will never satisfy because they have been satisfied by the love of God. And that's why occasionally you meet a Christian who is different. You listen to what they say and it doesn't make any sense. There's something weird about them. They don't respond to the enjoyment of certain things the way you think they should. They're normal people. They live life. They hang out. They still care about you, but you can't put a finger on what motivates them. Why they do things the way they do. What makes them excited in life? Because it's just so foreign from what you're thinking. Because what's motivating them is the love of God. You see, even the good things we want come from selfish desire. We are sinners through and through. People who want only evil, who chase things that won't satisfy us to fill the emptiness that can only be found through the love of God, who have desires that would make the worst of us blush if we didn't restrain them and keep them in check. And until we see that, we won't see why we need the love of God. That's what the whole book of Judges is all about. Exactly what we're capable of if we chase whatever we feel like. David says, your love is better than life. What he means is that it's far better to serve God, do the right thing, love others, and make the love of God a part of us, and then take the adventure that comes to us, however painful it may be, than to chase whatever gives us pleasure, scratching, clawing, for just one more high. Proverbs 8 says, Those who hate me love death, because that's what sin is. That's what evil is. It's death. It's the death of every good and noble impulse that we know, the death of every good part of us until we are distorted into a hateful, twisted shell of what we used to be, until finally our physical body dies as well. Even J.K. Rowling knew this when she has Dumbledore say, Above all, pity those who live without love. Voldemort was the embodiment of what life without love leads to, a twisted, erratic, clawing at life at any and all costs, not realizing that living without love is a fate worse than death. Did I just insert a Harry Potter reference into a serious episode about the gospel? Yes. In an ironic twist, self-sacrifice is the ultimate self-preservation. Hold up. You're saying only Christians can be good people? I'm not. It's foolish to say this. You can look everywhere and see people without any knowledge of God doing good and self-sacrificing things for others. But just the mere existence of good in the world is God through his love and mercy drawing people to himself as much as those people might even hate the very idea. But true happiness, true purity and motive, and a true standard when the rest of the world goes bad is found when we don't chase anything but love for God, and through that love for God, 
love for others. Look at times throughout history, such as Nazi Germany, when the entire populace was manipulated to do terrible things. The people who swear they would never be a part of such wickedness would, in all likelihood, be doing those terrible things had they lived in that time and place. That's because humans are easily manipulated. Our desire is to please and preserve ourselves at all costs. Only by following the way can we truly see a worldview that looks beyond ourselves toward others. Because when you're following the way, everywhere you look, you see Jesus. Baby Jesus, who could have been in heaven amidst incredible wealth, sitting on streets literally paved with gold, spending time with his family and those who loved him, but he came to earth so that we, through his poverty, could become rich. The young Jesus, who could have lived a life in the spotlight, but chose a simple, quiet, peasant life so he could understand what our life is from day to day and empathize with our pain. His life was hard work and repetitive toil so that he could become one with the human race. The adult Jesus, who lived only to serve and minister to others. He could have gotten whatever he wanted for himself, been in heaven enjoying himself, used his powers and miracles to get himself recognition and respect. But instead he came to earth because he wanted the sick to feel healthy, the discouraged to feel happy again, and the sinners to find a way to stop doing the things that they hated. The crucified Jesus, who suffered unimaginable pain, physical and mental, the likes of which we cannot comprehend, because he wanted to see us alive. Jesus envisioned the faces of those he loved. He envisioned your face when he was in the garden, struggling with the decision to save people. He saw our faces, alive and full of joy, and that's when he knew he had to go through with it. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The risen Lord, glorified with all the power of heaven by his side, but who, once he learned from his father that his sacrifice was accepted, went to check on his friends and share with them what his life had just bought. Jesus, our high priest, who sits in heaven as a defense attorney, looking at us on earth doing horrible things. He pleads with us to turn from our wickedness, and to anyone who will listen, greets us with outstretched arms like the father greeted the prodigal son, and weeps over everyone who goes to the grave without repenting. Jesus in the future, trillions of years from now, who yielded up his godhood powers in order to become a human, never able to reclaim them because he didn't want to see even one of us go to our doom, not if he had anything to say about it. If Jesus is not the center of your Christianity, can you really call yourself a Jesus Christian? The followers of the way were first called Christians, Christians in Antioch, because they couldn't shut up about Christ. Religion is not about what we do for God. It's all about what God does for us. In the moment we start thinking about doing something that will in any way make God love us more or do something nice for us, we are venturing into the realm of false religion. And if you're going through your religion from day to day, just going through the motions, unaware what you're motivated by, maybe you should ask yourself, what does the gospel mean to me? Because here is what it means to me. He who has the Son has life. The person who looks like Jesus, who wants and tries to live their life like Jesus, has life. They are being saved. Notice that the Bible talks about being saved, present tense. Because we aren't being saved from being toasted by an angry God in a hot furnace. We didn't pay homage to God and now, oh look, now we're saved from turning and burning and roasting. 
We are being saved from a life without love. The desire for evil is slowly being taken away from us and replaced with a love for others we never could have thought possible. If your end goal isn't to look like Jesus and to help other people see what Jesus looks like so that they can look like him too, you're not a Christian. Because only those who have the Son have life. What does it mean to have the Son? There's a chapter in the Bible. It's called the Faith Chapter, and it's Hebrews 11. And it lists people who are good servants of God. Let's take a look. Rahab, a prostitute. David, a murderer and an adulterer at best, rapist at worst. Gideon, who made an idol and whose poor decisions led to an all-out Wild West situation, as well as he tortured some people. Jephthah, who killed his own daughter. Samson, who lived a horrible life. We had an episode on these two. So how did these people have the son? Having the son isn't about being perfect. It's about getting on the elevator to heaven. You can fall down in that elevator, throw up all over the floor, whatever. As long as you have set the end goal to look like Jesus, you can mess up big time in pursuit of that goal. But you know where you're headed and you're still on your way. Whoever has the son has life. There is no X factor to the way. There's nothing mythical or mysterious that you have to obtain so that you can be like Jesus, besides the help of God. I used to try to have faith, to have this weird feeling that somehow made me a good Christian. If I could just get enough faith, I'd be all right. There is only to choose and to do. That's it. Choose and take action. And if you choose and do, you're drawing on the belief that God will help you accomplish the impossible. To be like Jesus. With man, with humanity, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The father, crying as the demons thrashed around his son, asked Jesus to please save his son if Jesus was able to do anything. Jesus responded, Everything is possible for one who believes. There was no change in the father's mind. The father still had feelings of doubt. If he thought about it, he still wasn't sure what Jesus could do. Was the guy really who he said he was? Nothing changed in the father's mind. Except one thing. I choose to believe, he told Jesus. Help my unbelief. And in that moment, the spirit shrieked with rage and left the boy alone forever. Choose and do. The disciples were told to forgive, forgive, forgive. They protested. We can't do that, Jesus. Please strengthen our faith. Jesus responded that if the disciples had even the smallest bit of faith, they could even move mountains. Nothing would be impossible for them. They had to just go ahead and choose. Choose and do. That's what it means to follow the way. Choose to believe. It may look hopeless, but God can make us look just like Jesus. Then do. Believe. And God will help our unbelief. Choose to do the things that Jesus would have done and not to change your own pleasure. Choose and do. Just take action. Do the best you can, and God will make up for the rest, for the failings that you have. Because whoever has the Son, whoever is choosing to look like Jesus and taking action in that direction, has life. It's that simple. Following the way is not about what you know, who you are, or what special factors you have. It's only choosing and doing. 
And all that choosing and doing is made possible by God. If I had to describe what God does for us in one sentence, I'd take it directly from Proverbs 30. The rock hyraxes are a feeble folk, but they make their home in the crags. The rock hyraxes aren't good at much. They have no innate method of self-defense. They're not fast, strong, or clever. Their only strength is that they know they aren't good at much, which is why they run for the crags. And there in the crags, they cannot be harmed because they have sheltered themselves in the ageless rock. It's similar with humans. We might not be great at changing ourselves, doing the right thing, living the right way. But to quote something God said through one of his prophets in the book of 1 Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord run throughout the whole earth, waiting to show himself strong on behalf of whoever is loyal to him. God is not out to get us. Following him is the hardest thing ever and that we have to give up our own ideas of what makes us happy, but it's the easiest thing ever because he is using all the power in the entire universe to keep us from being lost. God doesn't set a long list of rules before us, telling us to follow them under our own power if we don't want to roast. God doesn't threaten us with eternal torture if we don't do what he wants. God shows us how feeble we are, how we aren't good at much, how exercising our desires will leave us broken, empty shells until finally we collapse and die. But he offers to shelter us in himself, the ageless rock. Then God gives us a new motivation, the desire to do good and to be like Jesus, loving God and others. It doesn't matter how impossible that seems. Nothing is impossible with God. All we need is to choose and to do. But what we do is not on our own power. It's the strength of God. We aren't checking boxes and once we check enough, we go to heaven. The only thing we need to go to heaven is to be heading in the right direction. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever is choosing to let God make them more like Jesus and taking action in that direction has life. Not a single person will ever be denied admission to heaven when they say what the Father said. Nothing changed in his feelings. He could just as easily have doubted that Jesus could heal his son, but he chose to believe and that was all that mattered. We can choose to believe that God will change us. Choose and do. Take action like Jairus, who knew that only Jesus could save his daughter, so he went miles out of his way to find Jesus. That is all that God requires of us. See, salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. We can't earn heaven. We can only recognize that we are feeble and run to God. The rock hyraxes are a feeble folk, but they make their home in the crags. So the last thing I'll say is this. Read the Gospels. Read about what Jesus did. Read about his life, what he was all about, what he did for others, the way he treated even those who hated him. Then remember what the good news is. There is a God. He looks like Jesus. Anyone who tries to tell you that the God of the Bible does not look like Jesus is a damned liar. That's the end of this episode, and I hope I've given you a lot to think about. I've been alive for 25 years, and it wasn't until the night that I started on this episode that I heard the gospel this plainly. I've been starting to realize pieces of it, but it all came together for me tonight. It's given me a lot to think about. Maybe you've seen people who claim to be followers of Jesus who have told you something different about the gospel, that God will toast you forever in hell if you don't suck up to him. They're lying or misinformed like I was for so long to the point it almost drove me to hatred of God. The truth is, God never told us to look to other people to see what he's all about. He gave us one book and said, This testifies of me. If we want to see what he's really like, 
We'll read that book every day until we start to look like that, because by looking at Jesus, by reading about Jesus, by learning more about Jesus, we are changed. I hope that whoever you are listening to this podcast, my words are just the beginning of a journey for you. Next season, we'll be back to my trademark sarcasm and cheeky pop culture references. Tales from Sacred Text will still be the podcast that you know and love. Because Jesus said to search the scriptures, but he never said we couldn't be sarcastic when doing so. Thank you so much for listening to What Drives and Motivates Me, for listening to this episode explaining the angle from which I approach the gospel, and for listening to this podcast where I share my thoughts, feelings, and trademark sarcastic humor. I really appreciate all of you. Please leave a five-star rating, and please, please, please tell your friends so that we can grow the tales from Sacred Text's audience. I love you all, and I hope you have a wonderful time living life until season three comes out, and I promise it will be soon. Trailers should drop in a day or two. Credits to myself, Caleb Howard, for music and script writing. Credits to myself for theme music and to Anchor Podcasts and Evoke Music for background music.